Hello, I'm Llewellyn King, the host of White House Chronicle. Thank you for coming along. Today, I'm joined by Linda Gasparello, as usual, the co-host of the program, and a very remarkable and special guest and favorite friend of mine, John Sibley Butler, who is a professor at the University of Texas, who is a professor of business and sociology, but he is much more than that. He is a very, very, very successful entrepreneur. He has also been a very successful teacher around the world, having lectured regularly taught in Japan and China. And uh, he says things when you're talking to him like, oh, I, you mentioned San Francisco, oh, I own some property there. It's quite amazing. <laughs> but what he is especially proud of, I think I can say this, Johnny, welcome to the broadcast, by the way, Johnny. I'm going to let you speak in a minute. Okay. Um, <laughs> Um, uh, the, uh, is especially proud of uh, the work he's done as a sort of uh, uh, in helping develop Austin, Texas into what it is today. And he's working on doing the same thing with Brownsville. He is also a fairly prolific author of some really interesting books. It is Entrepreneurship and Self-Help Among Black Americans, a reconsideration of race and economics. But mostly we want to talk about your ideas about business, your own success in business. And I think there was this large, long and laudatory introduction. I'll end up by mentioning that you are a statistician. We <laughs> don't have many statisticians on this program. So take it away, John Sibley Butler, and tell us about yourself. Thank you very much, my good buddy. Let's talk about my research. I'm John. I'm a professor of management and sociology at the University of Texas at Austin. And my good buddy Llewellyn King uh, uh, and my and, and the co-host there, they were they, they were talking about the work that we've done with cities. Um, I'm a principal in, uh, in in smart cities with uh, CMG Group. But let me let me just talk some about the research and how over the last 35 or 40 years we changed we we changed Austin, Texas. It really goes back to the relationship between ideas and doing. A guy by the name of George Kosmeski who was the uh, founder of Teledyne, came to Austin and said, let's do something different. So we put together a science city and, and basically I was doing research. Then I became director of the IC Square Institute. And our job was very, very basic. You know, if you look at uh, different cities, there was a model where you would, you, would, you would ask companies to come to your city. You, you would give them tax relief, or pay them a bonus, but we said the following, how can we start our own enterprises? So we put together a technopolis, and by that we mean this. We came to the conclusion that, of course, business models starts with science. Of course, uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley had already been launched, they were doing great things. And we said, why should California and also Boston have lots of funds? We're in an interesting situation here in Texas with oil and gas. Uh, Texans have always been very, very entrepreneurial. Uh, Dallas is a corporate city. Houston is a corporate city. And of course, San Antonio relates to the military. So we have really, really changed Austin. It is now a technopolis, technopolis, one of the great cities to do business in America. Our own that we produced were things like evolutionary technologies in this Texas region. And then, of course, Herb Kelleher did Southwest Airlines out of uh, San Antonio. Michael Dale did uh, Dale Computers 
out of Austin, Texas. Jim Trussard did National Instruments out of Austin, Texas. John Mackett did Whole Foods out of Austin, Texas, and a host of other companies. And we think that there is a now, there is a, an algorithm to it, or there's a relationship between science and technology. You know, uh, my distinguished colleagues, when people ask me about, well, what's the formula for creating the great cities? And I, I would say the following. Well, you know, if you want to be a great, great country and Western singer, you go to Nashville. If you want to be a movie star, you go to Los Angeles, Hollywood. You want to be an opera singer, you go to New York, perhaps Italy. If you want to start a company, where do you go? And why? Well, you have to reason with me that I go to I go to LA if I want to be a movie star, because all around me are people who really, really know the business. So I might be busting tables and they would say, Well, you know, I need someone to play this role in the movie. Come along. Well, you create the analog of that. And you would say, well, I have people who know how to do startups. We have people in the financial services. We have organized all of the wealth. Jamie Rose organized all of the wealth for, for, for investing. So we now have the Central Texas Angel Network that's in, and invested over 100 million in startups. We have the, the Baylor Angel Network that's done the same thing. The Houston Angel Network, the Agate Angel Network, the Hill Country Angel Network, the Cowtown Angel Network, which is in Fort Worth. And the purpose of the individuals, what they do as angels is to, these are just wealthy individuals. They help us with the young kids who actually start enterprises. Because you know, then it is a, we have an economy that's based on two modes of operation. We have the corporate economy, but it doesn't do much research anymore. Llewellyn, when you were a kid, you know, General Motors, did most of their research and, and they trained their own engineers. And they learned how to put big wings on cars. And they learned how to put big wings on cars and they didn't have to go to universities for, for engineers. Right now, back in the 1980s, the government said, we're gonna create something called major research universities. So a lot of research money would go to the universities and all of a sudden, the kids are coming out of Harvard doing Microsoft. They're coming out of Stanford doing, doing, doing Apple. Of course, the web was, was started at the University of Illinois and then migrated to, to Silicon Valley. So all of a sudden, the kids are getting involved. I used to study entrepreneurship, and the average age of wealth creation was <clears throat> a little older, in your 50s and your 60s. Well, <clears throat> Michael Dale was 19 when he started. Gates well, let's, hold this, let's hold the thought a minute. <clears throat> Linda, you've got a question? I do. Johnny, what is, uh, for young entrepreneurs these days, the uh, Appian way, or maybe it's the app way, for to go from an idea to an industry? Is there a set route that they should take, or is it just so different now that we have different ways of approaching capital, et cetera? You know, with the internet, with the internet, things have changed, but this is what you must do. You must study before you leap. What has not changed is that you want to study, you want to know everything to reduce the risk before you launch your enterprise. And universities, again, have been the great incubators for, for lots of uh, companies and ideas. 
Now, when I was in school, there was no idea of incubation, right? So, so here's the process. Uh, for example, in my undergraduate class, I can almost match every idea that the kids have with the patent process. So I tell the kids, all great enterprises do not have patents. Dell did not have a patent right down the street. But on the other hand, investors don't love patents because they do not want to invest in a commodity. So what happens then in, in, in my undergraduate class where you have to start an enterprise, right? What we do is we teach a process of study, then matching your ideas to a patent, and then doing what we, <clears throat> we call a quick look. And from the quick look, create a deck. And of course you study everything from the market. Of course, marketing have changed. Marketing now is mostly physics. It's writing equations, Llewellyn, to where you are going because we right. have the Johnny, data. Johnny, I don't I have just, to ask you what you like. Me, I have all of your data. So once we do that, the most important thing is have individuals who will invest in you. Of course, what we call this is, is you come to Austin, you're going to reduce the risk. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, let me break in here <laughs> before, before we, we get any more of a commercial for Austin. Um, uh, one of the, you are from New Orleans. I am. Oh, sure. Thought, yes, Franklin. Yes, New Orleans. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah. The most entrepreneurial place at the street level I know is New Orleans. There are people doing every kind of thing to make a dollar, but there is no stepping stone. The guy who has an excellent job, a little boutique doing shoe shining, has no way of franchising that there is no stepping stone for somebody who's, who's doing almost anything at street level. And that, that is, you talk about universities, but there are an awful lot of people who succeed in business, uh, whether, it's, whether they're plumbers or workmen or whatever, without university. What concerns me is this, this gulf between genuine entrepreneurism general enthusiasm for business and originality and how you get into the mainstream raising capital if that should be the need marketing going from small to large uh, what what are the steps you recommend there well absolutely what we're talking there you're talking about traditional enterprises people must eat great restaurants people must travel great travel services People must have great, great, great flowers, as, as we say it in, uh, in, in Mardi Gras, everything is for sale. But the difference is, the difference is, is that the kind of entrepreneurship that I deal with is, is based on technology and is based on scale and is based on people purchasing you or scaling the enterprise. But you're right, the value system is the same. The person who has a street vendor or the, or the, or the, or the truck, if you will, restaurant, has the same value of the great entrepreneurs that have come through in America. So the person who has a flower shop has the same value of a Rockefeller. The person who has a, a, a lawn service has the same value of a, of a Michael The difference is, is that one gets into the financial services, the financial projections, the investing, and when you invest and you do a startup, this is how so much wealth is created. Now you have to imagine with me, I'm going to draw a circle on the board and I'm going to say, uh, you guys now own 100% of this business, but it's 100% of nothing. And this answers your question. How do you entice people to invest? So I'll come along and say, okay, 
I'm going to I'm going to invest a uh, million dollars um, in the company, and I want ten uh, percent. Now you have a ten million dollar company because I have uh, I have uh, you know ten uh, percent and one million, and all of a sudden, but the revenue is nothing. But once I get going, now I have ten percent of maybe the revenue of a hundred million or fifty million. So you don't get that in regular kind of enterprises. What we call lifestyle enterprises. For example, my father had a malt shop. We had a malt shop when I was growing up. And you're exactly right. It was not going to be a franchise. But what it does do, it provides the same kind of value structure, the relationship between you and the market. And I was taught you always have a way to take your problems to the market when you have problems economically, right? So I think that you're exactly right. They have the same value structure. Same is true in Mexico City, one of the most dynamic cities in the world. I taught in Mexico City in the MBA program for the University of Texas for 25 years. You stop at a red light and everybody's trying to sell you something very, very entrepreneurial. But it's not wealth creation in the sense of when we say that we're gonna we're gonna do a, a small startup and all of a sudden, if, uh, Johnny, if I don't let Linda in here, I'll have a wealth creation. Yes, problem. yes. And so that's you're <laughs> right. Same value structure, but different scale. Linda, <laughs> that's right. I think, John. I think what we're really talking about is scale, and you can be an entrepreneur with a good idea that turns into an industry by getting access to capital through a Kickstarter campaign. And then after the Kickstarter campaign, as you learn along the way, you can go to an angel investor, maybe the one of the ones that you've spoken about in, in Austin and other places. And you get that, you accrue that knowledge along the way, but it depends on what kind of business you're doing. As you said, if you, you know, starting up a, you know, a, a retail business is quite different than trying to start a new insurance company where you would just need a different level of, of knowledge about the market, a, a deeper level probably of knowledge about uh, about the market than you might with a, with a retail operation. Absolutely. Here's the stalling statistics. Speaking of statistics, 98% <laughs> of all the great companies in America have been founded in three regions in the last 50 years. Silicon Valley, 128 in Boston, in Austin, Texas. Silicon Valley has done everything from Hewlett Packard to Hotmail to eBay to, to Google, you name it. 128, of course, you've got Microsoft and lots of other companies. Austin, Texas, I've mentioned those, National Instrument, uh, Southwest Airlines, Dell Computers. What is it about the idea that all of these companies have just started in three regions? Why has Silicon Valley been so dominant? And Linda, you hit it on the spot. When we look at and move from Angel Network, for example, the great majority of the startup money is in Silicon Valley. In the state of Texas, it's mostly in Austin. And Boston has done just a wonderful job on the East Coast. And it goes back to saying, okay, if I want to be a movie star, I'm moving to LA. I'm not going to try to be a movie star in Hammond, Louisiana. I'm not going to try to be a movie star in Auburn, Alabama. Nothing wrong with those cities, but it does not have the support. You have uh, you have owned a number of companies and uh, prospered. Uh, tell us a little about yourself. You come from 
uh, a relatively long line of successful African-Americans, college-educated for five generations, which uh, that's what we call a leading question when I'm telling you that uh, uh, that's all right. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, because I think people would be enormously interested. Yeah, well, yeah, I was I was born in New Orleans. I'm a fourth-generation college graduate, uh, and I was born into what I call an, an, an economic successful enclave. And it is those Southern individuals who understood that uh, the market was very, very important. My hero is Boogity Washington in Tuskegee, and my father, and my grandfather was all in gas. And so he sent all of his kids to, to college in the 1920s, as did uh, my parents, and as did my grandmother, uh, was also a college graduate, and her dad, and her father was a college graduate. And I think it has to do with how you think about the economic system in America. So I was raised there with, uh, and my father had uh, small enterprises. He had he had uh, running complexes, and uh, we had a malt shop. But more importantly, his father was really, and his mother were really, really uh, the entrepreneurs. So what you have to guard against in America is is letting college strip you of that creative and entrepreneurial spirit. You have to guard against that. So when I when I went to I went to LSU for undergrad and PhD at Northwestern. Well, I knew that I wanted to do a business enterprise uh, as a professor, and 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 I, I was really interested in, in 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 immigrant entrepreneurship. When I was at Northwestern, I was fascinated about how I used to go to Greek Town in North Chicago, how they could arrive in the country on Monday on Monday and be in business on Friday, right? And 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 then I got involved in the tech transfer. I was the first investor in Alan Blake's Glowfish. We did very very well. We did the first genetically altered pet. And before that, I was an investor in the Wheel Group. We did very very well. Uh, both of those uh, companies sold in the in the multi millions. And right now, I'm invested in in another companies that we have started, Nucleon, and another group called Eco Testing. So I think that what, what I have done is to follow the patterns of Booker T. Washington, follow the patterns of uh, my father and mother, TJ and Johnny May, Johnny May Sibley Butler. I'm named after my mother. And I think that when you do that, then you have a certain kind of expectation. And what I'm doing is I'm competing with my grandfather. Isn't it amazing, Llewellyn, if I tell you my grandfather lived better than me in 1918? <laughs> Uh, that is pretty amazing. He lived. You, you he were, lived. You also it, served in Vietnam as a man. Yes, I served in Vietnam and on a on a helicopter. I did. I was. Uh, uh, so yes. you you've seen some pretty awful stuff. Oh yes, I have. And of course, that's all part of being an American. You know what I mean? Uh, you know, we used to say, "Listen, every every generation has this war." You know, and you and you go and you and, you, and that that was fascinating to me. Uh, uh, I was a medic there and. Uh, I think that uh, you learn a whole lot. But what you really learn is how value structures are passed from generations to generations. So as a soldier identified with soldiers from the Revolutionary War, it put me in the same tradition of all soldiers. You know, one of the most interesting things that ever happened to me, you know, I would go to the, uh, I, I went to the Vietnam uh, Memorial and I had a really, really weird feeling, almost passed out. But then I was in Jonesboro, uh, Georgia, and I went to a Confederate, uh, Confederate graveyard, and I got the same feeling. These were just soldiers. They were soldiers fighting for what they believed in, and they had people giving them orders. So it gives you a sense of, of what it means. I would say that you have never lived until you've died for those who have 
fought for it, freedom had the taste that the protected will never know. And I think you get a perspective there and it bleeds over into the economy. And the question is, how can you do great things for future generations of Americans? And Linda, I have always thought that the company, that, that the country, especially America, is more about the markets. For example, if you look at some of the older, if you look at England, right? Uh, very, 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 very artistic, very, very wonderful uh, society, right? But in America, it's where, it's where the downtrodden made it. You know, uh, in America, it's where people came and got off the boat and said, you know, I'm gonna provide certain situations. And of course, all the data that I have of the millionaires who were once slaves just really, really uh, encouraged me to really keep my mind on the markets. Linda, you got a question for Johnny? I do, Johnny, keeping your eye on the historical thing, and I really recommend that people read your book, Entrepreneurship and Self-Help Among Black Americans. Everybody read this book. It's a real eye-opener. But in a historical perspective, again, if we're talking about communities that were receptive to African, African-American entrepreneurship, well, one of those communities really surprised me, Durham, North Carolina. Um, will you talk about that and about the businesses that were born there? Oh, yes, you know, we would, uh, you know, at that time, uh, before I was born, uh, the analog of the NAACP was the Booker e. Washington's Negro Business League. And every city, every community beat its chest. And nobody beat their chest louder than Durham, North Carolina. Durham, North Carolina uh, combined in manufacturing, regular kinds of enterprises, service enterprises, North Carolina Mutual was there, which was the largest black firm at the time. And of course, they had a private university at North Carolina College, which is still there. And Booker Washington wrote an essay in Thailand, Durham, North Carolina, the city of enterprises. And then uh, E. Franklin Frazier wrote an essay 20 years later in Thailand, Durham, North Carolina, a city, a city of, uh, of uh, the black middle class. So they created in the context of homophily. If you want to think about it theoretically, think about what Chinatowns have done in America. So they had a business enclave. They had a university there. The expectations were high. Even today, that region has some of the highest uh, percentage of of, uh, college graduates. But everybody who made the city go, they were ex-slaves. They came out of a tradition. you know, as I said, you can't let education take your creativity away. So the person who started the North Carolina Mutual, for example, uh, and the person who started the colleges, uh, they were done, but, but, but they did not have to be a college graduate to be successful. And all everybody is standing, Durham is standing on the shoulders of those black entrepreneurs who had ideas coming out of slavery and took that to the market. And also, I have a good friend, uh, uh, Buster Sorries, who, who also read the book. And he went to a city in New Jersey and he called and said, I have created a new Durham, North Carolina. Well, Durham, North Carolina was one of those great black enclaves. And there were many, many across the country that stressed education and business enterprise. And by the way, all of their enterprises really survived the Great Depression. And by the way, they refused to close Hillside High School in favor of going to the high school because they thought their black high school was much better than the white high school. I have to interrupt you there to do something of a commercial. Uh, John, 
Butler can be seen every Wednesday on a webinar called Digital Roundtable at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central Time, where he stars along with the creator of that program, our mutual friend, Andres Carvalho. The downside is I'm on with him every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern. Well, you know, I can't hold my own with you because you have so much history and you've done it all. I'm just walking no, in your No, office. no, you've clearly done it all. The problem is that <laughs> I'm deficient in those departments. <laughs> I can't add up a checkbook. How can I be a great to compete with a great statistician? Yeah, but your value structure, when, when I say, oh, yeah, we did that a long time ago. I like that. I like the history. <laughs> because I tell people, you know, as we like to say, if you want to do great enterprise, go read Sloan's book, How I Built General Motors. The technology changes. But it's all about social psychology of the customers and understand that. So uh, how do we do this? You mentioned Sloan, and that's very interesting because Peter Drucker, the great uh, uh, guru of management, whom I was lucky enough to know, uh, at least I had a drink with him. Uh, and he was very funny. He also, he was extremely, he wrote a very funny book called Confessions of a Bystander, which isn't about management at all. It's about his own adventures, some of which are quite, uh, uh, you know, far from business. Um, right. Well, you know, in our creative management, you know, I like to read Drucker. I like to read Sloan. Technology might change. How we communicate might change. But Johnny, concept. what I want to ask you, what I want to ask you is there's a curve. I've observed it a lot where new enterprises, startups have high energy, high input, a lot of intellectual input, a lot of possibility, and then they succeed. And then they get onto this kind of plateau, they flatline along and suddenly management becomes important. And suddenly it goes from always saying yes to frequently saying no. The dynamic is squeezed out. How do you deal with that? Or do you accept that? In fact, you also accept it because it's true. I think the data shows that it's true. Uh, George Kosmaski, we used to talk about creative management. That is, we always say if you give your company to a regular manager, that company, the manager will kill the company. What, you, what you're looking at, I mean, as you know, the business landscape is just littered with the Sears and Robux of the world. And all of those companies, I mean, who had the, who had the best possibility in America, Sears and Robux. Who had the prettiest building, Sears and Robux. Who had the best money, Sears and Robux. And then comes along, comes along a guy from Bentonville, Arkansas, to create something called Walmart. Very, very creative, and 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 he kept his his eye on the customer. Joseph Schumpeter, another one of my great scholars, would say the only thing I can tell you because of that about the great enterprises of today is that they won't be here tomorrow. John, as a statistician, you know that time is unforgiving. That is our show, I'm afraid. Please come back again. You have been a totally fabulous guest. Meanwhile, relax, everybody. Cheers. Our program, White House Chronicle, is on offer as a podcast for you to enjoy. Full shows on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and all major audio platforms. Subscribe and take us with you in your pocket.